Unfortunately, we all knew that getting approval to put men on the ground in a hostile environment such as Afghanistan would run head on into one of the modern day military's most vexing institutional shortcomings, risk aversion. Risk aversion is a direct byproduct of not understanding what's going on around you. And by proxy, another version of, quote, getting treed by a chihuahua. Back then, it didn't seem to matter how important the mission was to national security. If there was any risk that a man might be killed or captured during an operation, the operation was deemed not politically worth the risk. Instead of focusing on the opportunity at hand, risk-averse leaders get treed by the potential risk and fall victim to the greatest operational failure of all, the failure to try. One of the most unfortunate byproducts of risk aversion was, and still is, something we called the footprint paradox. To obviate any risk to the small number of men needed to conduct high-risk operations, the upper echelons of the military believed they had to employ massive armadas of helicopters, jets, vehicles, and people to address every possible contingency. Helicopter-centric planning was and still is the driving force behind the footprint paradox. The type of risk aversion that drove the footprint paradox seemed especially counterintuitive to us in the unit. From our perspective, we volunteered for this way of life with full cognizance of the risks that went along with it. We trained our bodies and our minds to a level that gave us supreme confidence in our capability to be successful in any situation anywhere in the world. The question that high-ranking leaders always seemed to inject in any risk-averse oriented discussion was, is it worth getting a man killed for? 40,000 people die on our highways each year, but when you get into your car each morning, do you ask yourself if driving to work is worth getting killed for? The main question that high-level leaders should ask is whether the mission is important to our country. If the answer is yes, then we in the unit had no issues with laying our lives on the line to accomplish it. Could someone end up getting killed? You bet. We're talking about combat but we had no intention of ever letting that happen. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason McCarthy here with Richard Rice. Our guest today is Pete Blaber, former Delta Force commander and author of the books, The Mission, The Men, and Me, and a new book, Common Sense. I read The Mission, The Men, and Me as I was transitioning to the civilian world in 2009. I thought it was a near-perfect leadership book back then, and rereading it two more times since has confirmed that for me. I say near-perfect. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Our theme for GORUCK Tribe for 2022 is Life Has Risk. So what I really want to do is delve into that with how Pete Blaber's mind works. And, and that was the purpose of the quote at, at the outset, because you're, you're teaching these timeless kinds of lessons that we're, we, we need to keep learning and relearning and every generation has to learn and, and relearn. So, you know, how do we make decisions? How do we take care of our people? How do we take care of our kids? Stuff like this. Let's, let's, Let's get to uh, some of the, the thought behind the man that wrote one of my favorite all-time books. Pete, it's an honor to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Rich. Great to be here. And uh, uh, great opening quote made me, uh, made me reflect on our current 
the current times and uh and you're right it you know i could have written it uh today and it would be just as relevant i, I got goosebumps reading it i mean i'm like this is so like, you are willing to assume so much risk and and, and yet well i, I want to talk later about risk assessments i want to talk about how you know commanders and and you know, operators do everything we can to mitigate risk so that it's at, at the least risk possible because that's also relevant. But we always start with kind of how people grew up and you did a great job of detailing that in the mission, The Men and Me. So from a slightly different tack or, you know, how did you grow up assuming risks that led to bruises and bumps and failure and, you know, that process? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, no, great question. And, uh, you know, it's a question that I actually reflect on quite often because I, my youngest son is, uh, is only nine years old. And so it, we all know as, as parents, uh, you know, as well as, as leaders that the ultimate dilemma is, you know, how do you protect, uh, the people for, who work for you or your children but also give them the freedom to learn. And what you're pointing out, and, and it goes back to my childhood, I think the defining principle that most of us had, you know, in, in that generation and in, in most of these generations in the recent past, um, we had freedom. And, you know, we had freedom to go get on our bike and ride uh, you know, to the boundary of our town or whatever, just, just to see the boundary of our town, which was, you know, nothing but another street. And, you know, we fell off that bike. Uh, we, while looking at a friend, you know, would crash it into a parked car. And what you said is, is exactly right. The only way to learn is through experience. And you're never going to know that you're moving too fast unless you wipe out while you're moving too fast. And all those wipeouts, it takes time, <laughs> you know, they accumulate and pretty soon you become this, you know, uh, uber consciously aware human that is just totally assessing the situation around them, uh, you know, in whatever they're doing. And for me growing up, I was a, you know, I grew up in the Midwest uh, in a suburb outside Chicago uh, middle child of nine kids. Um, almost every family on my block had five or more kids. And, you know, that was just the way it was of big families. You could afford big families. Uh, and you know, my mom, we would wake up in the morning and she was, she was strict and very structured. Uh, you know, it makes me, when I reflect on my parents today, I see, you know, just how amazing they were uh, in raising us, but, you know, we would go outside and the next time we had to come home was at lunchtime and the same thing at dinner. Uh, we didn't have helicopter parents and, you know, we, you learn to appreciate that. First off, you understand you're on your own and there's no lifeline behind you. So every situation, uh, is presents itself with some kind of danger, some kind of peril, uh, whether it's just getting in trouble for doing it or getting hurt. And, you know, to me, when I look back, it was that freedom and that constant ability to assess the situation around me for risk and for opportunity. 
and then to just use logic uh, to make your decision. Um, you know, because in the end, the same thing when it's just you and when no one else is telling you what to do or watching over you or criticizing you, you also reflect a lot more honestly on what you did. When the only one who knows you screwed up is you, uh, you can actually critique yourself in a, you know, objective, honest way and learn from whatever it was that you did. And, you know, I, I would say that was what was, you know, integral. It was like a military. I, I, I was being trained to go in the military without knowing it uh, as a kid. I just, uh, you know, learning about life is is the only way to survive. And uh, and I was fortunate enough to to grow up in an environment where I was allowed to do that. Okay, so you you mentioned your your youngest son is nine. How how old are your kids? Uh, I've got uh, four, and the oldest one's in her late twenties. Oh, God bless you. Um, but so the run running different age, like you're the, the sweeper is nine though, right? So you're through a lot of the, the, the early year stuff and you're, you're getting into that kind of, you know, his exploration, like how, you know, you look at this order, the mission, the man and me, I mean, how, how does that evolve from being a, a commander to a parent to wanting your kids to like, you don't, Correct me if I'm wrong. You don't want your kids to be you, you know, you want your kids to be themselves and happy and you want to set them up with for success. And, and how do you view that risk assumption and, and how do you tackle that with your kids? I, I think it's, I think it's similar. It's, you know, that same, uh, trying to find the balance between enough freedom and enough structure. But I think, you know, it's similar. You mentioned the mission, the men and me, and, you know, it's actually, it's simple, yet it's a complex principle. And the, the complexity of it is this. It's not a like pure hierarchy. It's not like, it's always, you know, just pure the mission, then the men, then me. They're all integrated and they all affect each other. The mission is why you're all there. And that's why it's so important in the military. And, you know, you, we've all seen leaders in the military, and there's some great leaders who understand this, but most, I would say, do not understand it. And, you know, and, and that is just understanding the risk that, you know, your, your, uh, your people are going through and how, why they're there in the first place. And they're there in the first place in the military for the mission. They join the military not to work for you as a leader. They join the military because they're patriotic, sense of adventure. You know, you can describe it different ways. Most of them coalesce around, uh, you know, that patriotism, wanting to pay something back uh, and at the same time, you know, see the world and adventure. So that's why the mission, you know, comes first. Because that's why everyone's there. And we know that it's very clear in the military when you stop and think about it. You know, that's your common sense of purpose that everyone's there for. So your job as a leader is to help them accomplish that purpose. And in the military, you know, it's, it's that mission and it's professional development, you know, over time. But if you apply that to your kids or as a parent, it's really the same thing. You know, the your kid is there to live their life. You know, we all got about a hundred 
and uh, to survive, to thrive and evolve as an individual and as, as a species. And that's your kid's mission and your mission. And you as the leader, uh, your job is to enable your kid, facilitate your kid's ability to accomplish that mission, to survive, thrive and evolve. And, you know, again, complex uh, because you're constantly trying to find that balance uh, between just enough and uh, and not too much. So, uh so, yeah, so that's Pete, what's what's kind of like a practical example that you would like, what's a risk too far for your nine year old or, or anything you want to draw on any of your kids? What's what's something where you would say this this doesn't actually this risk assessment is a no go at this station? Yeah, well, obviously, if you think, you know, they're going to get hurt, you don't allow your kid to learn that, you know, they can't touch fire by touching actual fire. Uh, you stop them before they do it. So, you know, that would be the first thing I'd say is, is, you know, what's the, what is the actual situation? Is it a life or death? Is it way above their, uh, their capability? Um, but, you know, beyond that, it's, I think it's all, it's completely contextual. Um, you know, in, in the mission of men and me, I talk about this principle of audacity, you know, which we, was one of our watch phrases leading up to uh, the battle at Shahi Coat, Operation Anaconda. And it's, you know, audacity, audacity, audacity. Take it to the enemy, do what they don't expect, uh, and, you know, be brave while you're doing it. Well, audacity isn't like this ability to deal with risk. It's not risk aversion. Audacity is reflective of knowledge and confidence. When you understand what's going on around you and you understand the situation, and that's both nature, so in the military terrain and human nature, the mindset of your enemy, when you understand that, you are confident in your ability to adapt to it. And that's where audacity comes from. And it's, I think it applies the same way with your kid. If your kid has no idea what they're doing and it's a you know precarious situation, then that's that's too much risk but if you've already gone over it and you know your kids tried whatever it is you know say rock climbing or something they've already climbed they've already had instruction whatever um you know it's a different it's a different equation and you're going to feel differently about letting them push the envelope a little further uh you know to expand their learning to expand uh, you know their frame of reference but you know, that's it's a main part of the concept. And it, it goes back because you read that quote about, you know, risk aversion. That's the problem. That's where risk aversion comes from. They don't have any knowledge They're You know, these are cavemen talking about rocket ships. Uh, and I'm talking about politicians and people, you know, general officers in the Pentagon, um, you know, making a decision without knowledge is a timeless formula for disaster. And, and that's again, where, why all the principles tie in, you defer to the guy on the ground. Uh, and you can't say that too much because they're the only guys with any context. They're the only guys who really know what's going on. And, uh, you know, like I said, you can see that today, uh, you know, in, 
in some of the craziness that we're dealing with today. Uh, it's the same thing. These A lot of the people making the actual decision have no idea what they're talking about. And so, you know, it, it, the, there's risk in everything. But once you're confident and once you understand the situation, it's not it's not audacious. It's not risky. It's uh, it's just confidence and self-assurity that what you're doing is the right thing to do. So so to kind of summarize one of your points, you, you talked about, you know, how, how would we go get bin Laden? This is pre 2001. And you're like, oh, I'd send a couple dudes in Afghanistan and tell them to figure it out, literally. And, and that's that's like what would you call it? The Lewis and Clark, uh, you know, and, and so, but here, here's the thing. You, let's talk about how we reduce risks and how we maximize upside. So if you start with defining success, which, which people don't want to do, there's always, you know, moving targets, like whether it's the virus, right? Like, oh, is, is zero deaths success? Cause that's never going to happen. You know, so let's stoke the fear and, and do all that, right? But when you look at military operations, you say, look, you guys, Rich calls it, you train to invincibility. And you, you feel that way because you've done that over and over and over. And you have this confidence that comes from so many, you know, so much time at the range, so much time at the shoot house, so much time at, at whatever, right? I mean, how do you... Like, how do you decide when something is too risky for someone that a, a brother in arm that you love? Walk us through the kind of the, the, the risk assessment process. Yes, you've got to come up with the missions, but sometimes a mission is too, it's too much. Like we, I'm not willing to do this, or I am willing to do that. Like the risk, the reward when there's, there's so much, there's so much on the line because I, I want to kind of dispel this, this, it's, it's, people don't actually think this, but the perception of military decision-making process is, is that it's just so kind of, you know, rote or something. There's no creativity. There's no, it's just like the decision is made for you by doctrine or something. And your, your book describes so much more, you know, the, the curiosity, the guerrilla suits, the, all these things that like battlefields are 360, you know? And so in that, like, what is the process of risk assessment to yes, to no, to maybe later if we do this, when there's so much on the line and, and so much confidence that you have in the people that you've trained with? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And so, um, you know, I think it comes back to uh, your mindset and how you're going about uh you know, dealing with that risk. And that's where common sense comes in. And it's also where the military planning process begins going off the rails. It, it goes all the way off the rails as time goes on and it moves in, but it begins going off the rails right in the beginning of the planning process. When So think in common sense. Think if you were, uh, you know, Choose your choose. You either had your memory wiped clean or you got amnesia, you hit your head and you're learning again uh, about life. So all you got is common sense, which is the way our nervous system is hardwired to make sense. Uh, so with common sense, instead of being contaminated by something like 
the military decision-making process uh, or anything else. You just understand based on nature and experience, you know, uh, your history, your experience with human nature, because they combine uh, to inform you about what's actually happening and why it happened. So what do you do when you don't know anything? You incrementally begin learning about it. And it's, you know, there's tons of ways to think about it. Think of dipping your toe in the water because you don't know if that's really water or acid or if it's boiling hot cauldron or freezing cold. You don't dive into, you know, water you've never seen before. You test it first. And it's the same with dealing with complexity, dealing with, in this case, uh, some sort of international uh, problem that is a threat to freedom loving people, whether just in the United States or ac across the globe. If you just go by what you think, you're going to you're going to go off on a tangent. It's just a wild guess. But if you go with the natural way we make decisions and solve problems, which is this concept of developing the situation, developing the situation is the common sense way to deal with complexity. And that's what we did. That's that's the story of AFO in Afghanistan. There was no mission statement. There was no chain of command. Uh, there was less than 500 special mission unit personnel on the ground at the time a hodgepodge of individuals from the unit, uh, special forces, uh, and uh, uh, OGA uh, ground branch guys. And, and some Air Force and, types. What's that? And some Air Force types, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah. So there was the normal attachments of signal and uh, CCTs and all the special uh, you know, accoutrement that go with it. But it was just that. And we had... No one was telling us what to do or what we should do now. And so, you know, think about that. How would you organize if no one was telling you how to organize and you had no guidance on how to do it? And I, I teach this to people in both military and corporate world because it works just as well in the corporate world. Think about your job and what you do in your job, whether it's, you know, manufacturing, research development, sales. Think about what you do and how you do it. Uh, and, you know, how do you learn about your job? How would you organize to accomplish your purpose? And that's the next part of this that's so important. Even when you're rudderless, you have to have a purpose or everyone's going to be off on a different sheet of music. So, you know, going back to AFO Afghanistan, those first days and weeks, less than 500 people on the ground. We had, the one thing we had was a common sense of shared purpose. And we said that purpose out loud. You know, it was to find bin Laden and his foreign fighter allies and uh, neutralize bin Laden and his foreign fighter allies to prevent them from concentrating combat power on the Western world. And we were, that's what we were doing in Afghanistan. We knew it, okay, how do we do it guys? Well, we looked at all this talent we had, this cross-functional talent, and said, let's just organize ourselves based on what we have here. And let's not go for any type of symmetry here. Let's organize the teams based on the area we're going to put them in. Okay, well, where are we going to put 
these people in. Uh, Afghanistan is 645,000 square kilometers of, of mountains and urban hamlets. And so where do you put them? Well, you put them where the enemy is. Where's the enemy? Okay, what do we know about the enemy right now? We know what tribe they are. And so they're only going to be hanging out in the parts of the country where that tribe controls the terrain. So that, you know, nixed about half of Afghanistan and made us focus on the other half. And we just necked that down the same way. You know, where are they? Well, they got to be around the city. These are not the Viet Cong. They can't live off the land. They've got to have an urban umbilical cord. So, you know, we use this this concept, it's an incremental concept, but it's developing the situation. Develop means to bring out the possibility and potential. Situation is what's going on around us. That's what we're doing every second of our existence. We're developing the situations. That's what humans are hardwired to do. And so conscious awareness of that concept, which we had at the time, the mission I gave both to AFO and again, uh, a year and a half later in Iraq for the invasion of Iraq was to develop the situation because we had no idea uh, what was in front of us. We had no idea how this enemy really fought. Uh, we had no idea how the people really felt about us. So how do you deal with that uncertainty? You don't say this is too much. We're going to, you know, we're going to all die you develop the situation, you incrementally begin learning about the environment and sharing what you learn with everyone else. So another key principle is, and uh, what we did with AFO is when you're organizing, build loops, not ladders. Ladders is what we're trained to do. We're trained to go, okay, I'm the guy in charge. This guy here is my deputy. Uh, Jimmy, you'll be underneath him. Joe, you're underneath Jimmy and on and on. And it's like, why did you just do that? No one needs a hierarchy to accomplish anything. Build loops, not ladders. Loop everyone together, which is what we did. I didn't go around and tell the ground branch guys and special forces guys, hey, I'm in charge. Uh, so anything you do, you got to go through me. Never said anything like that. Never would. Instead, we looped everyone together, said anything you learn, share it with the entire loop, no matter how uh, inconsequential or irrelevant you think it is, because by sharing that information, you get smarter, too. You pressure test the knowledge, you build on it. And so that was our approach there. And it's again, it's it's not like some revolutionary thing. It's just common sense. And so. When I when I go back to that that point, you know, December, January, 2001, 2002, uh, when we were the only ones on the ground and how we in in a matter of three weeks chased all the foreign fighters almost out of the country. The last ones were hiding at Shahi Coat, uh, which became Operation Anaconda. But we dealt with the uncertainty and the risk by developing the situation. And with every moment we learned and got smarter, we became more confident, we became more audacious. And uh, it, not, it doesn't just work on strange battlefields, it works on strange uh, you know, corporate environments and it works in government too. You know, Pete, I, uh, 
you've hit on something that's important to me. I'm a history buff. So I tend to look at the past because I think the past influences what we do today and what we'll do tomorrow. And you started bringing up something several minutes ago about kids out in the neighborhood doing their thing independent. And that sense of independence builds a sense of confidence as you learn skills, learn not to run your bike into somebody's car or, or dump your bike in a gravel road. You, you learn all these things and that confidence builds and it couples with the common sense aspect when you're independent. And that just, that flows into what you're talking about, the, the whole process that goes through and, and all the way up to building loops because you're, as a child, when you're out in the neighborhood, you're on your bike, you're hooking up with others. So you're starting to build teams and you learn that team concept. This, this happened to me and we'd go out all day long. Sometimes we'd come back for lunch. Sometimes we wouldn't. And, and, and we take some heat for that, but that's okay because we were, we were building a team within that neighborhood of friends that got together and worked together and learned together. You know, somebody'd run into a, a gravel road, dump their bike, get all scraped up and then tell the guys, Hey, you need to be careful when you hit the gravel road, because there's a problem there. You, you may not be able to control. And so that whole process. And it's the same in the military, in the units that you and I have been in, that you, you have that sense of independence. You have confidence building because you're continually building specific skills within that organization or within that team, within that group. And then couple that to that common sense aspect. And it leads to, that leads to proper observance of risk aversion. In other words, you know when to risk yourself and when not to risk yourself. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Time, time is a key component. So, so as we, as we look just for some, some additional context, I mean, you, you grew up in Ranger Battalion, right? Uh, yes. You, you know, and, and so you were influenced by guys who had done stuff, whether it was Panama or Grenada or the, the stuff in, in the eighties, it, it's past kind of tribally. They become the people that you look up to. You have to meet the standard that you don't know from those guys. And, you know, you, you transition over to, to the long walk or, you know, Delta selection and you, you join that community and, you know, you're, you're training at the, the tip of the spear there. You're building trust and confidence in, in the people to your left and the people to your right. I mean, you know, if talking to this guy to my, to my left, I mean, there's, there's an iteration in the training where you're put in the hot seat, right? And, and all your, all the guys that you've trained with are coming in with hot rounds into a CQB and like they're, they, you're hoping they don't shoot you. And that, that type of, of, you're not going to get that approved to a normal infantry unit in the, the army. Right. Or in it, it's, as far as I know, it's the only place that does it. Maybe there's the SAS or something. Rich is kind of nodding a little bit. Um, but you're, you're putting these, you know, this fifth pin principle of patrolling, AKA common sense. Right. And you're, you're, you're finding the people in the most dangerous situations possible, which Afghanistan, 2001 quote, quote, Indian country. Right. I mean, 
you're, you need to put the right people in the right places is what I'm getting at. And the entire selection process in the, the anvils that you were forged on, right? It, it, it's proven not only to the person to your left and to your right, but to yourself that you can operate in a, in a high risk environment and you can manage that risk and still achieve success. So in, in that, I mean, I guess my, my point is, is like, yeah, risk assessments to your earlier point, it, it, it's always contextual, the mission, the man and me. And if you were working with, you know, what would you have sent your, your, if, if you'd had a battalion of Afghan Jundis, like you would have treated them very differently and allowed them to assume a lot less risk than with the guys that you loved more, you love like brothers, you will risk them more because you have this confidence, because you know who they are. Right. And, and you're, and, and you don't feel like, you know, you're, you're risking, you don't, that, that even the concept of risk and the connotations, the emotional connotations it brings with it, don't even enter the, the picture. And, you know, again, in the mission met and me, I talk about my conversation with Speedy you know, who is uh, one of the sniper recce guys going out uh, about to infill in over the 11,000 foot uh, range into uh, Shahi Coat uh, to do uh, reconnaissance, confirm the presence of the enemy and then begin neutralizing the enemy. And, you know, he had said it was the night we were going to leave very early in the morning, uh, take them to a drop-off point and they walked in. So, you know, that night he said to me jokingly, uh, he said, sir, I told everyone this was, this was not ever going to happen because no classic sniper recce mission that has ever been considered has ever been approved. And he said, but now I actually believe we're going to do it. And then he laughed, just like I'm laughing to you. And he said, and you know what else? Now I know, sir, you, you really don't care whether you really don't care about me. He always used to joke, uh, you know, sir, you're my commander. And, and, you know, he, he didn't, he usually called me Panther. Uh, but here he was saying, sir, and he, he would joke about it uh, kiddingly. And he said it there. And I said back to him, Speedy. It had nothing to do with uh, whether I care about you or not. I I am supremely confident in your ability, and I don't have any concerns at all about whether you're going to accomplish this mission or not. And, you know, when I say that, you have to understand Speedy and the guy who's with Bob uh, to understand why I was speaking to him that way. This was like Daniel Boom and Simon Kenton uh, in 17 you know, 75 on the frontier, there were no, to find two greater woodsmen, outdoorsmen, survivalists, sniper, recce, operator, assaulter, in anywhere in the world would have been very difficult. Uh, they were both marathon-like endurance. They both had done, you know, what it takes to be a good uh recce guy to sneak up on a target. When people ask me, how do you train for that? I tell them you have to try to, you have to sneak up on 10,000 targets to successfully sneak up on one because you have to know all the things that can compromise you 
how important patience is. Uh, you have to be as hard as woodpecker lips, uh, which sniper recce guys are. Assaulters, most assaulters cannot be sniper reconnaissance because it's a painful, uh, you know, no glory job. They just lie in the cold, uh, you know, for days at a time and uh, rarely get any credit for it. So, you know, bravery has a lot to do with company you keep. So does confidence. And, and so when you build your team, the team around you with these amazing people, you're another level closer to, you know, this risk assessment equation you're talking about, about not considering it as risky. And, you know, bravery has everything to do with the company you keep. And so does audacity and so does confidence. And uh, when you're with guys like that and you understand their potential, which again is important because in hierarchies, a lot of time the leaders don't even understand how good and how capable their people are. And the only way to understand that is to be with them and to see them in action and to listen to them uh, and you know, be objective about assessing what they can really do. So, you know, that that's that would be my uh, my thoughts on you know on bringing it home. How you would how you assess in a situation like that. So, were there any situations that go to kind of the the human, very human side of it, where there was a lot of fear in your life? Maybe, maybe it was Afghanistan 01. Maybe it was like, what does that look like to, to your career? Like what, when, when did that, when was that a big thing that you had to deal with? What, fear or? I don't know. I mean, the first time I jumped out of a plane at airborne school, I don't know if I was, I was scared. I'm not, I mean, it's like courage is saddling up anyway. And so I just kind of followed the guy in front of me. Um, you know, but the, the, the first time there was a, a kinetic mission. I'm like, this is uncomfortable. Like call it fear, call it, you know, I mean, we, we label these things, words that don't necessarily mean the same thing for everybody. And I, and I get that, or it does mean the same thing. We just learn how to operate inside of it. Like, was there, you know, whether there's, there's your, your, fearful for your life, the lives of your men, there's a situation that's very uncomfortable where you're, you know, what does it look like? Like the Pete Blaber's equivalent of, you know, dealing with that. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on it. Anytime your people's lives are in peril, uh, you know, and, and in cases like, again, Afghanistan, where that peril was created by, you know, leaders outside your small group, like it, you had nothing to, no say in it. And uh, so I would say, you know, probably when uh, those guys were trapped up on the mountain on Takur Gar, um, you know, the, the one-star general back at uh, Bagram sent a QRF force into that mountain uh, without telling me he was sending them uh, or the guys who were on top of the mountain. And, uh, you know, they got, pardon my French, the shit shot out of them. The helicopter was knocked down and uh, most of those guys died uh, before they even got out of the helicopter. So four of them. And, you know, I felt right there uh, as helpless as I've ever, 
you know, felt in my life. And, and so your question about, you know, I don't know if I, if it was fear or despair or, you know, anxiety, um, but just in the same way I've always dealt with it on myself. And you're right. First time at airborne school, if you're not, you know, call it what you will, if you're not have some fear when you go out that door the first time, then maybe you're not human, you know? Uh, so I've, I always dealt with it in the military with myself using common sense and which was, you know, you're standing there, uh, with your hands on your reserve parachute waiting for the green light and you could take counsel of your fears and end up into a, you know, a blithering ball of mush, uh, jump refusal, or you can be a realist and go, I'm in line. I'm hooked up to the anchor line cable. Uh, that thing's about to go green. So I need to 100% focus on proper body position on, uh, you know, counting on assessing whether my parachute is good and I need to pull off a good landing to make it to the ground. And that's the only thing in my life that matters right now. So stay focused on it, engage your, in your neocortex. And the cool thing about that, and, you know, this is a big part of my new book, The Common Sense Way, is when you think, when you engage your neocortex, that's the logic part of your brain, your thinking brain, it vanquishes fear and panic because when your neocortex turns on your thinking brain, your emotional brain turns off. So if, you know, literally if a kid was in line on their first jump and they just, you know, fear was about to turn them into that, you know, blithering ball of nothingness. If they just start breathing deep and counting, they will engage their neocortex and they will vanquish those emotions as long as they stick with it. And the reason for that is your thinking brain is the only part of your brain that can speak or understand language. And it's the only part of your brain that can take control of unconscious processes. And so when you understand that, you understand this isn't some magical thing you're doing uh, or something that uh, has not been proven in science. Your brain, you've just switched your brain from the emotional side to the thinking logic side just by talking to yourself and counting, which, again, makes sense. Why do we when you when you are truly scared, what do they always say people do? They begin talking to themselves out loud. And that is a, you know, an incredible uh, adaptive behavior passed on to us by our ancestors all you have to do to engage your neocortex is breathe deep and count uh, or speak either or and think. Uh, and when you do that, you deal with the fear. So, you know, that's the way I was always I always dealt with personal uh, anxiety or fear. But I would say that, you know, moment having my guys trapped up there, not knowing exactly how many of them were up there because I didn't know the you know who was on that helicopter uh, you know, that was as close to me feeling that, uh, that fear, that despair as I think I've ever felt in the military. So the, to, to follow that up, right. Because how do you process failure? How do you process, you know, 
whether it's your control or it's your not, I mean, do you have, like, you've had the rest of your life to think through that. I mean, to, because we all have this, Pete, you have the rest of your life to think through what could I have done differently or what, you know, all of that. And you know, you know what happened. And, you know, it's like, how, how do you process that? And I ask that because you, there, there's a lot of people out there that, that can benefit from understanding that, you know, like you, you write a really successful book, you're, you know, you're running a company, you're, you seem all these things, but you still feel fear, fear when you're jumping out of airplanes, or you still have, you know, some version of survivor's guilt or how, you know, these labels that people have, you you have some version of, I, I, I go back in my own brain and I replay these things. And I ask myself what I could have done differently. And how do you, as a, as a man, as a person kind of make your peace with that and, and keep moving forward? Yeah, I, I think it's, I'm just a realist about it. Um, I've been making mistakes my whole life, so it never shocks me anymore when I make a mistake. Um, and, you know, I think just to circle back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, that's part of that independence as a kid, uh, you know, and the freedom that you get is not just a kid, but is a professional, no matter what your profession uh, you're not learning if you can't assess your own actions and then take actions based on them. If someone's just screaming at you, uh, you know, a, a bad boss, a toxic boss <clears throat> about <clears throat> what you're doing. And, and most of the time it's not even accurate. You know, they they just scream at you whenever it doesn't make sense to them then your feedback loop is all messed up and you don't even know, you can't even honestly assess, you know, what you did or why you did it. <laughs> For me, you know, this thing about logic and having foundational logic about anything is my way of, of dealing with, of lessons learned and how to adapt to them. Um, and again, it's just reflective of the way the brain works you know, if you let your brain work the way it's hardwired, it works in amazing ways when it comes to survival. Um, you know, we remember things that have an emotional component to them. So most of the time when we reflect on something and we feel a negative emotion from it, embarrassment, shame, um, there's a reason for that. And that emotion is giving you the ability to remember that, which is huge, because if we don't remember our mistakes, we never correct them, right? Uh, those who don't heed the lessons of history are damned to repeat them. Um, and, and that is just true. It's because, you know, you walked off the cliff with the rest of the lemmings and you did not file that in your brain is never follow lemmings off a cliff again. Uh, you know, it's denying the obvious. So I've always been, I've always been incredibly uh, um, ruthless with myself on where I screwed up. But bigger than that, if you understand why you did what you did, if you understand the foundational logic behind your decision, it's really, you, you might second guess your foundational logic, but you don't really second guess the decision. Um, 
And, you know, it, the, the reason that that's, that's so important is because, you know, a, a famous uh, experiment was done by Stanford University into decision-making. And, you know, they spent thousands of hours, millions of dollars, and had a long, you could still look it up online, has a long, uh, tons of great things about decision-making, about the way the brain works. But their summary of the entire study is the most powerful, in my opinion, of almost any decision-making study. And it says this, the dilemma choice is not based on making the choice, rather on the basis or foundation of knowledge upon which it stands. So, you know, the dilemma choice is not yes, no, buy, sell. The dilemma choice is the, the due diligence you did, the logic of why you're making that choice. And if the logic of why doesn't make sense, you will regret that decision. And if it turns out in a catastrophic way, you will regret it for your whole life. But when the logic of why, the basis upon which your decision stands makes sense and you understand that, uh, you very rarely walk around like you got a pebble in your shoe. You, you don't regret the even when situations don't turn out, you know, to the max potential you wanted them to. Sometimes, uh, you know, a hurricane blows in. Right. And everything, you know, you had the perfect plan. You had the perfect intel. But. Uh, a hurricane blow blew in and, you know, you can't infill whatever, uh, or it blew in while you were infilling and exposed half your team or, you know, ruins your weapons, something like that. That's, that's beyond your control. So, you know, the, the basis upon which you decided to go do that, you know, that assault is still sound, but a hurricane blew in. So, you know, it didn't turn out well. See, you're not going to beat yourself up over time. And, and to sum that up, the reason that's important is think about what you're doing. Understand what you're doing. And I, I tell this to guys in the military today, especially when it comes to uh, combat. Because, you know, in combat, there's far more incidents that you'll regret then you'll be, there's far more potential for incidents you'll regret than you'll be proud of. And friendly fire and civilian casualties are the two biggest. And I think, you know, if you added up Afghanistan and Iraq, all the friendly fire and civilian casualties and compare that to the number of actual combat casualties, it would be pretty close or more on the friendly and civilian. And you know, when you, why does it make sense to always treat other people humanely, including the enemy? Because you got to live with those decisions. Why does it make sense to uh, take a deep breath and pause before you pull that trigger? Because you just cannot tell who that is until you know for sure. So if it's just a a flashing body going from one door to the other and you aim your gun and pull the trigger and that turns out to be one of your teammates, you will regret that for the rest of your life. And if you let an enemy go, you probably won't. Uh, you'll just double down and go, that for sure was an enemy because he's shooting at me now. Okay. So and I'll know that guys with that type of helmet on and that shirt are the enemy, but you learn from your decision and, uh, 
And so to me, back to that Stanford quote, you know, the dilemma choice is not based on making the choice, rather on the basis or foundation of knowledge upon which it stands. Make sure that knowledge makes sense. Make sure what you're doing makes sense. And after that, you know, it's life. And sometimes you can't control nature and life. And uh, when that's the case, you know, shit happens and you're not going to be regretting it for the rest of your life. Amen, man. Um, So on, on the back of your book, you're called a stoic with a sense of humor. Did so I'm, I'm kind of, besides that being kind of a cool thing for someone to say about someone, have you, do you study stoicism? Like, where do you get these? Cause you're very well read. It's obvious, you know, and it's, if only because to write something this good, you have to be well read, right? You, you have to be able to process other people's thoughts through your own, between those, the, the, the space between your two ears, like what's the importance? Because, you know, look, man, people see Delta force commander and they see all the, the war stories and, and all this stuff, which you, you told well, and in, in with the point of being useful, um, what is the importance of the, the poet part of warrior poet to you? Like what books influence you? How do you kind of, um, how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple things about the amazing human brain, you know, human thinking depends on metaphor and it metaphors how we think about one thing in terms of another. So, you know, metaphor is incredibly important and you get it from all over the place. The most important thing is that you get it. And, you know, books allow us to do that. Uh, You know, they changed the world from the first time Gutenberg uh, printed the Bible all the way to today. They allow us to share, to, to memorialize knowledge, which is the, you know, the primary purpose of both my books and the primary motivation for writing them. They allow us to memorialize knowledge and then build upon that knowledge, which is why it's so important to write things down and it, to pass them on. Uh, you know, that's why you write a book, not, you know, to make money or anything else off it, uh, which is really difficult to do. You write it to share knowledge. And so I think it's, you know, it's everything you're, uh, to me, you know, the classic operator is a warrior scientist athlete, um, you know, you've got to be a warrior athlete because <clears throat> you can be the greatest tactician and strategist in the world. But if you can't get over that mountain uh, with a 50 pound ruck and a full combat load, then <laughs> it's not a good idea. And, uh, you know, you can't you cannot have tell your men to go do something that you don't know or you can't gauge yourself uh, as far as whether it's doable or not. Uh, so, you know, that reading part, you know, that building a mind full of metaphors of situations that let's face it, I can't go back and, you know, experience Vietnam, but I can through books and there's so much great stuff from Vietnam. I, I still, uh, to this day, you, there's a website at Fort Benning that allows you to go on and read monographs, 
which are written by the guys who actually experienced them from all through Vietnam. So when uh, captains came back from Vietnam to go to school there, and when the NCOs came back to go to their Sergeant Major Academy and whatnot at Benning, they all wrote these monographs and they're on file there. And they're these amazing things because they're raw and they're full of, you know, so rich in lessons learned and in thinking. And, you know, to me, those are important, but so are, you know, these other things. Like you said, the poet, you got to go beyond military. You, you can't just read military. You, you know, to me, I've been very fortunate to, you know, stumble into some of this, the neuroscience type stuff, how the brain works, the simple how the brain works, uh, because all of that stuff is actually reflective of what you're taught in the military, uh, you know, by good leaders throughout your whole career. All that stuff of staying calm and thinking and, you know, breathing uh, and, you know, courage is contagious. All those things together, we have mirror neurons. So, you know, just like with deer, if deer are eating in a field and one deer raises his head and goes stock still, all the other deer stop eating. If that deer bolts to the woods, all the other deer follow. All mammals have mirror neurons. We have them too. And that's why panic is contagious, but so is calm. And, you know, leaders, one of the most, you know, impactful lessons I learned as a lieutenant in the Rangers was from my battalion commander who told me, you know, after a exercise and I had gotten on the radio, there was a, a PC we had to find and me and my platoon found it. And I think I got on the radio and, you know, in a moment of excitement screamed, I got the PC or something. And he told me afterwards, he goes, look, as a leader, um, always take a deep breath before you speak on the radio. Uh, the human brain takes 90% of its meaning from behavioral cues and only 10% from content. So, you know, 90% of what you're taking away, if you're screaming and panicking, not you're sending a message of, of panic to your subordinates. So he said, take a deep breath, talk slowly and calmly because calm is contagious too. And usually it's your guys who are standing at the breach. It's your guys who are pinned down by fire. So, you know, the last thing they need is someone else screaming on the radio. And it was a great tip. I used it throughout my entire career. Uh, always took a breath, always forced myself to talk slowly, clearly, concisely, and to pass on that calm to my guys. And of course, you know, over time, I learned the PhD level of that is just a simple question. What's your recommendation? Ask the guy on the other line, what's your recommendation? And what does that do? It gets them to think and start talking. By default, they're engaging their own neocortex, vanquishing anger, fear, and panic. And now they're sharing real logic-based knowledge about what's going on with everyone else who's listening. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's incredibly important if you want to, if you want to survive, you want to keep your guys alive and you want to accomplish your purpose, you have to be a well-rounded warrior. And, uh, 
you know, there's no end to the amount of knowledge uh, that you can consume and build on to help you uh, to get to that status. So me asking you, what's, what, got any great books I should read? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, I would read Once an Eagle, uh, great, great book, Gates of Fire, uh, another great book, King Leonides and, you know, the 300, what the movie 300 is based off of. Um, and, you know, I, obviously I'm prejudiced, but I throw in, you know, both of my books, The Mission of Enemy and The Common Sense Way, only because I'm passing on stuff that was passed on to me. And, uh, you know, that's that's what's in those books. Uh, um, all these great warriors who passed on knowledge to me and all these great scientists who passed on knowledge, I combine them. Uh, you know, into one place and, and provide the practical application for them. So I would, you know, those, those specifically those two uh, to me, because they're about leadership uh, once an Eagle and gates of fire and, you know, from uh, partially from feedback, but I think when people want to learn about leadership, you know, in the past, I think we've, we've, uh, tried to do it by teaching methods, you know, and what people really need is mindset and they need models. They need to like, they need stories of, you know, leaders who lead the common sense way and apply it to their thinking uh, and apply it to the way they treat other people. And, you know, I say that because I, I get a lot of feedback from people uh, who, who read these stories and especially on things like, I really like the way, you know, you treat the operators in your unit. And, you know, it's hard for me to take that as a compliment because that's, that's just the way you treat, you know, your friends or your colleagues and in the unit, you know, you, you so respect the people you work with and you have that type of mutual respect-based relationship. Uh, so it, there's no other way that I would ever even consider acting. You know, it's again, it's just common sense, but people need that. They need a model of how to interact. And, you know, again, think of one of the, one of the worst things I think our politicians do is they model the antithesis of leadership. Uh, you know, leaders care about their people and <laughs> they don't yell at them, degrade them, uh, debase them. You know, they care about their people and their people's welfare because that's their job. Uh, and, you know, we got to do more of that. And, and that's why I think books, too, are so great. There's probably plenty more I'll think of, but uh, those two would be the primary. You know, Pete, you said something there that I thought was really important, and that is, when I was a young NCO uh, out at Camp McCall in North Carolina as an instructor, one of the classes I taught was leadership. And we tried to teach leadership by teaching bullet points. We didn't teach concepts. And that was a, that was a fault on our part. And, and as I taught that class, it struck me that these bullet points aren't what they should be thinking about. They should be thinking about decisions made in context with their, with their common sense and so on. But 
I want to ask you another question real quick, and that is, when you think back on your life, your full life, not just your military life, who have been the most important influencers and why? Uh, yeah, so great question. Uh, you know, obviously my mom and my dad, uh, you know, leadership, to understand leadership, you have to under, understand its origins. And, you know, so we go back to the first leaders, they weren't kings or queens, presidents or prime ministers, sirs or ma'ams. They were parents, a.k.a. mom and dad. Uh, and again, we're talking about our caveman ancestors here. Uh, each of us had living caveman ancestors or we wouldn't be here. We're their descendants. And, you know, their life was completely different from ours. There wasn't a nanosecond in any day where they did not think about their own survival and their ability to keep their offspring alive. Uh, and what they did was that purpose drove every action they took. So parents raised their kid because the purpose was to teach them how to survive, thrive, and evolve, which means carry on and become parents themselves and raise good kids. And and so we can take a page from that. That's what leadership is. It's, it's a little bit different, but the parallels continue. You know, we don't coddle our kids unless, you know, you're, you're uh, trying to spoil them. We don't, you know, we don't uh, give them whatever they want and tell them or nor do we uh, micromanage them. You know, we guide them through life. We sit them down, explain things to them because we care about them and we nurture them. And, you know, we check our emotions at the door uh, so we don't overreact to things. And that's the same mindset leaders need to have. For me, you know, I said my mom and dad, I'd say next, I was very fortunate that, you know, my first two assignments in the military, I had incredible chains of command, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll just take my ranger my first ranger uh, assignment as a lieutenant, which was from a, uh, the late 80s into the early 90s. And my battalion commander was a model of a common sense leader. And he was different from all the other battalion commanders. We believed by far he was the best battalion commander, you know, you could possibly get. But he modeled these behaviors. He was cool, calm, collective. He was fair. Uh, you know, he, he would talk to anyone, a private could walk up to him and he talked to that private the same way as if some visiting general officer walked up to him. And I, he was modeling those behaviors in front of guys like me. And I took every single nuance, uh, you know, and, and remembered it permanently. He affected me for the rest of my career uh, as a model of a common sense leader. And by, of course, I, I was not him. I never tried to be him. Uh, I was different from him, but I modeled myself on, off those central core tenets. And uh, I'm very grateful to him for that because, uh, you know, he gave me what we're talking about, that living, breathing model of what common sense is and what a leader is. Uh, you know, a good leader who cares about their people. And, you know, 
he had these principles. And, and again, you would never hear these in a leadership class. He would, and he would constantly say them over and over. And he, he'd say, you know, if, if my car isn't the only one in the parking lot at six o'clock when we're back here uh, in garrison, then you're doing something wrong. And if you're waiting for my car to leave the parking lot, then you're violating two of my principles because none of your people are leaving and you're not getting them in home in time for dinner. And you're uh, still here too. So he, and then the next thing he said was uh, leadership, uh, friendship and leadership are indelibly linked. Uh, you know, when French, you treat your friends with respect. Uh, what leadership scenario do you know where a leader doesn't teach his people or treat his people with respect. And remember this, friends don't let friends drive drunk. And when they do, they take them to task for it. Same with leaders. So he was the first one to, you know, just this concept of friendship and leadership are indelibly linked. We're almost trained not to say that. But if you think about it, you know, treat your people like you treat your friends. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And with trust and respect, when they violate that same thing, like your kids, you, you want to reinforce it with, you know, the appropriate reinforcement. Uh, but that mindset to me, uh, you know, was integral to the entire rest of my career. And, uh, and so I would say, you know, my mom, dad, and that, that first battalion commander were probably the most influential uh, people in my, my career. So Pete, I got two more kind of the two more things to ask you. The the first is about becoming kind of an an author, right? Um, I, I think we all have we all struggle with this idea of, you know, quiet professionals, silent professionals. What's the, you know, I'm I'm not supposed to write a book because, you know, there's some code somewhere that says this thing. And the same people that write those kinds of codes, if if someone who stormed the beaches of Normandy was sitting right in front of them, they'd be like, please tell me everything. I want to, I want to learn from you all that you experienced in life. Right. And we talk about our culture being so kind of tribal in nature. And this is how knowledge is passed. It used to be oral and you would gather around campfires and, and, process all of these things. And it's, it's harder to do, or you'd process it on the two months it took you to get home on the boat. Right. And now you're, you're in combat one day and you're, you're staring at cereal at the grocery store the next, not knowing which one's for you. Right. And like, what was the risk assessment in your own brain that you did when you decided to write a book as a former Delta force commander? And what were you willing to accept from that? Or, I mean, like your, your motives and you, you address all of this, right? Like all these things that we believe in knowledge should be passed on. And there was a greater good to you, but what was the risk in your own, your own mind to the guys that you served with or to the unit that you, that you served in or to, to any of those kinds of variables? Yeah. So again, it's, it's a great question because everybody kind of thinks about it, especially ex-military guys. And uh, it was a huge weight, you know, on my mind when in the, especially in the initial phase, should I write it? So again, 
just like we talked about before, it goes back to your purpose. The whole reason I even considered it was because, you know, I got out right in the beginning of 2006. And obviously, you know, most of my friends were still in, uh, you know, all of those operators were still engaged. We were nonstop in Iraq and Afghanistan still. Uh, and so I was in very close touch with all them, uh, six, you know, into seven. And the shock to me, which had begun before I got out, but really by standing back, like you said, being on the boat, but but by moving away from, you know, the military environment, it allowed me to just reflect deeply. And my instant, you know, takeaway was, I, I just cannot believe we're not learning anything. You know, remember, we started in October of 2001. So we're now into six, seven, five years in. And, you know, the feedback from the front on both accounts, Iraq and Afghanistan, was you, you cannot even believe the shit we're doing. You cannot believe how stupid this is. And, you know, it would always, the conversations would always be the same. And then you'd say, well, what about, didn't they... We already learned that, you know, back in uh, 2002. Why didn't you bring that up? Yeah, they don't care about that. They don't want it. And so to me, you know, I was I, very quickly, I realized, wow, you know, it, it went from being, should I write this book to you have a responsibility to write it. And, you know, just stuff like that. Always listen to the guy on the ground and, you know, don't plan, prepare uh, you know, when in doubt, develop the situation, humor your imagination, all that. There were real world examples of us blowing missions and and stumbling into operations that guys got killed in for things that we had learned, you know, not in Vietnam, not in, you know, Panama or Grenada. We had already learned right there in Afghanistan, Iraq. And so there, I knew there was no common sense feedback loop going on in the military. And I explained, you know, in in uh, the mission men and me, one of the realities of what you're talking about, which is that learning feedback loop in the military. The problem is, uh, you know, multifaceted. One, you've got this bizarre secrecy thing that is arbitrarily applied uh, and it's usually arbitrarily applied based on how complicit the senior ranking people were. If something was caused by senior decision makers, then there is a security level put on that operation that is, you know, the highest there is and nothing can go out. They want to change the narrative and make sure it doesn't mention, you know, what the, the what really happened. And so to me, Again, as I state, it's not about casting blame. And that's why I don't use names in either of my books. We don't need their names. I don't need to know that General Schmedlap was the guy who did it. Future warriors just need to know that a commanding general who thought he was omnipotent sitting in a talk 300 miles away uh, with no experience on any kind of battlefield similar to this or any, you know, battlefield, uh, you know, specifically made this decision. And this was a horrific decision that ended up killing people and it should never happen again. 
that guy should have called down to me who would have called down to the guy who was in contact and said, what's your recommendation? And then passed that recommendation and said, Roger, what else do you need? Do you need it? You know, attack helicopters. Do you need me to get a QRF ready? How's that wounded guy doing? It's, you know, a change in that, in that mindset, uh, you know, of why you're doing what you're doing. So, you know, I guess that's, uh, I don't know if I answered your, your question there, but it's, you know, it's kind of the same thing. It's that context of the moment and figuring it out and uh, just using common sense about it. So, so were the guys that you served with okay with the fact that you wrote a book? Yeah. I mean, so I was most concerned with them. I was not concerned, you know, with anymore with the military hierarchy and some of the rules because they even in 2006 and seven, they didn't make any sense. You had you still had Schwarzkopf and all these generals writing books and there were no books about what we learned, just basic lessons, not giving away any secrets, not talking about, you know, my plasma gun or anything like that. They're just basic principles. So I knew this didn't make any sense. And the other part of it was I knew what was integral to all my successes and the fact I was able to stay alive was reading these stories and especially Vietnam. But, you know, I read all about Korea, uh, World War Two. But, you know, the Vietnam stuff, I read every single thing I could find on Vietnam and especially those monographs. And when you read all that, you know, all the same principles continually raise their heads. And that's and, and, you know, that was what, like, I could have taken those principles, always listened to the guy on the ground, went into out, developed the situation, uh, humor your imagination. And a guy in Vietnam, actually, you know, guys like that were saying the same thing with different words. And so my frustration came from that. And it came to a real sense of mission. I got to write this. Now, I haven't said that. It made the writing process you know, pick a number 10 times more complex than it already is. It's a monumental process. You got to sit down every day. I would get up at five, five thirty in the morning. I like to write in the morning. So I write before work uh, and then on weekends and holidays and everything else all day long. And each day I wrote at nighttime, what would, what I would toss and turn on was, did I write anything today that I would be embarrassed of to read out loud in front of my former colleagues. And did I write anything today that could possibly, even in the most far-fetched way, end up being used by the enemy to bring harm onto an American soldier? And every day I would scrutinize what I read for both those two questions. And many days I'd go back that next day, I'd take notes before I went to bed. And then the next day I'd I'd reword something, you know, maybe this, maybe this is too much right here. And I'd reword it. And so it was, you know, it was on my mind the entire time, uh, especially when I launched it. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I waited with great trepidation for feedback from my former colleagues. And, uh, you know, it, it trickled at first, then it, you know, came like a tidal wave and, it was all positive. Uh, you know, it was, Hey, 
I'm glad you said that. Uh, you can see I'm, I don't, it's not even a writing technique. I don't talk about myself or say that I, it was any way I'm the one who made it happen because I don't believe that. You know, I was there doing my job as a common sense leader, and I had these amazing, uh, you know, men around me, uh, and I had this amazing, you know, experience behind me. You know, when I'm standing, when I was standing there in the Panshire Valley in 2002, I had already spent, uh, I'd already done seven capture operations in Bosnia. I was part of the Panama Just Cause invasion, and I had spent over a year in Colombia chasing the uh, Cali cartel and Pablo Escobar. And so my background, my experience in hunting humans and dealing with people in you know, other countries and you know, figuring out what to do next in complexity was rich. And, uh, you know, I, all I was was a product of that. And uh, I was, had the opportunity to put it into practice and I did. And so, you know, the book was hard to write for those purposes, but the feedback was very positive. And uh, uh, I was not uh, excommunicated from the unit. I didn't get any kind of threatening letters for that book uh, as other authors have in the past. And uh, I'm not totally sure why that is, but, uh, you know, I kind of dealt with the same thing for my second book. Uh, and now they had the full uh, publication review process in place. So, you know, again, books hard enough. This book, they held this book for almost a year. It was 11 and a half months and they really didn't do anything to it. You know, like they told me, you know, I couldn't like I could say I could I could say CIA even though I didn't want to, but I I couldn't say the you know Delta and I don't say Delta, but you know once or twice in the book it's almost impossible not to, uh, and you know I couldn't say what unit I was from even though that's on my publicly available on my officer record brief, so you know it was just as hard. And I think it comes down to it's actually a good thing, because if you're a military guy and a military person, especially in sensitive missions, uh, you should really scrutinize your motivation for writing your book. If it's fame and fortune, um, you know, I don't agree with that. That's not why I would write a book. I'm not passing judgment on someone else. But to me, those aren't reasons for a military special operator uh, to write a book. The, the reason is to make a contribution to pass on knowledge and to hopefully prevent uh, some of the catastrophes that we experience from ever happening again. I mean, that all comes through to me um, in, in reading it because I think when you've got to dig deep, right? Because writing sucks. <laughs> you know, embrace the suck, got it. But you know, if, if your why isn't strong, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to turn, it's not going to produce a product like you've, like you've put out. So, um, l last question for you is, you know, this is the glorious professionals podcast. It's a mashup of glorious amateurs and quiet professionals. Right. And, you know, part of that is, you know, the, the next generation and our desire to have 
people on that have things to say that that people will learn learn something from, apply to their daily lives, whether it's this generation, us right now, or it's the next generation, you know, my, my kids, your kids, everyone's kids, you, you name, like, what's the, what's your advice to, to the next generation or to, to our people right now in terms of how to, you know, if it's common sense leadership, or if it's, you know, how to live life according to, you know, what, what's made you happy, proper, prosperous, successful, you know, all, all of those things. What, what's your, what's your advice? Yeah, so I to neck it down just without you know thinking real uber deep about it. I would just say it's about freedom, you know, freedom of choice and freedom of speech are you know essential components of our species. We cannot survive without freedom of choice, and uh, you know. What is freedom of choice? It's freedom to make sense of what's going on around you and sensible choices about what to do next without any external hindrances, whether that be, uh, you know, someone pressuring you, someone ordering you, whatever. That's what freedom of choice is. And that's, you know, it's really interesting right now, Jason, to see what's going on, you know, as as the entire world, every country is under this you know, this incredible dilemma and, you know, is dealing with senselessness of, you know, proportions uh, we have never experienced before uh, on a mass level like this. And so think about it. Think about like even taking a virus. What's the most important thing? The most important thing is our individual and collective freedom of choice to make sense of what's going on around us and sensible choices about what to do next. You cannot survive as an individual or a species without that. And every experiment in human nature that's ever tried to take that away has failed. That's why communism fails. That's why socialism fails. That's why every ism fails. That's why bureaucracies fail. Because bureaucracies take away freedom of choice, too. They put all the choice making in the hierarchy. And so, you know, freedom is incredibly important. I think worldwide, you're going to see a new movement here right now where we finally realized what binds us is not flags or, you know, some kind of historic nationality. It's freedom. That's what America is. America has no uh, predominant religion or race or anything else. We are freedom-loving people from across the globe who came to this country to be free. And it's still that way today. And as a military, what, what, what does that mean as, a, as someone who's in the military? It means that it's the ultimate litmus. If what you're doing isn't about freedom of choice, it's probably not the right thing to do. And, you know, World War II, I think, was very clear about freedom of choice. And to me, 911 was the same thing. Uh, you know, the mission made sense to go in there and deny the enemy's sanctuary in Afghanistan to prevent them from launching operations against freedom-loving people across the globe. That made sense. Uh, and, you know, that purpose has to be tied to freedom. 
Uh, and same thing with everything we do. Uh, you know, freedom of speech is, you know, the verbal manifestation of freedom of choice. We choose to speak, uh, saying what we're thinking out loud, no wokeism, no censoring, saying what we're thinking out loud is how we share knowledge. It's how we pressure test knowledge and it's how we build upon knowledge. So if we don't have freedom of speech, we can't evolve as a species. And same thing in the military. If you or, you know, your job at work, if you're running your team and they don't have freedom to speak up out or with you whenever they want, then you're you are not maximizing the potential for that team to accomplish their purpose. And you're also taking away a central element of motivation, what's going to keep them focused on their job and doing it well. Uh, so, you know, to me, the defining, you know, principle of the, of the human species is freedom. And it's a litmus we can apply to everything we do, the way we treat others, uh, you know, our policies, our procedures, our protocols, and even in the military, you know, give your guys a purpose that makes sense and then give them the freedom to accomplish it. When you have both, you have everything you need. And uh, so I, I, I leave you with that, that it's all about freedom. And uh, if we all think about that and focus on it, I think the world would be a much better place. That, that is a very strong close. Mr. Blaber, we are deeply respectful for your time today. And uh, thanks for just chatting, man. Like it's, yeah, it's great chatting with you guys. Really appreciate it, Jason and Rich. Well, well, thanks great, for coming great on. Great job, Pete. Thank you. Pete Blaber, that was did not disappoint. That yeah. was awesome to chat that, with him. That was great. He had, he had some great points to talk about. He's a great American. Uh, he's done a lot of things. He, he has a lot of knowledge uh, that I think we just scratched the surface on. Yeah. I'm like, that was, there you go. There's an hour and a half and I'm kind of like, where did the time go? Yeah. It, it, with somebody that has that much knowledge, it's, it's easy to talk to him. And he, he understands all of the principles the, the independence, the confidence building, the, the competence, the all about risk aversion and, and everything he addressed was just right in line. Thank you out there for, for listening. This was a, a really, really fun one for us in this labor of love that is the Glorious Professionals podcast. So thanks for tuning in. Share this one with a buddy. It's a good one. So have a good one out there. Thanks. Thanks.